This episode is sponsored by Rosina Meatballs. Rosina Meatballs come in six varieties, including its traditional Italian style, home style, Swedish, turkey, Angus, beef, and gluten-free. Go to rosina.com and get some uh, meatballs while you listen to this episode. You are now listening to the best show in the universe, The Anthony Rogers Show. You probably wish that this was your show, but it's not. It's The Anthony Rogers Show. Tell all of your friends to listen to this show. Welcome back to the greatest show in the universe. Uh, today we have guest uh, Kenneth Womack. He is a writer of several Beatles books that drew, uh, got my attention. Uh, uh, the 19, uh, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in Life, of, uh, and then Maximum Volume about uh, George Martin, which is awesome. And then just, it goes on, and you could Google him, uh, Google his name, so you have more stuff. Links in the description as well. How are you, Kenneth? Sorry for that long I'm doing break. great. I'm glad to be on the greatest show. <laughs> <laughs> well it's the guests it's the guests that make it the greatest show man like uh, so uh what, what got you into the beatles originally like uh you have a lot of uh beatles books well my beatles origin story is pretty sad it's uh <laughs> it goes back to the late 1970s when the beatles cartoons came on tv one morning as i was i'm probably eating my cheerios right and uh the cartoons of course were not great but the songs were wonderful and um i've been essentially on a quest since that day to try to um, try to understand them. And of course, there's a universe, uh, a great Beatles universe out there when it comes to trying to comprehend their story. And I am still in it. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think Paul McCartney died? Are you one of those guys? I am not one of those guys. Uh, <laughs> was- no. And, and yeah, I, uh, I did write a story about that for my junior high newspaper, the Kingwood Cougar. You probably heard about it. Well, I'm a big fan um, of the Kingway Cougar, actually. Yeah, well, no, they're, uh, I hope they're still in print. I've kind of been curious about that. But <laughs> in any event, um, I, I did write a story about that. But no, that, that story, the idea of the Paul is dead phenomenon really occurs outside of their narrative, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I don't, I don't really venture there very much, but it is interesting that at the one moment when uh, the Beatles are going into their disbandment and Paul McCartney is hiding out in Scotland, that that story breaks. I do enjoy that irony. Yeah, it's a great, I love the story. Yeah, no, I legit love that story. Um, what got you into some of the, I guess, like, uh, in particular, like what made you write a book on John Lennon, like, uh, in his last days and stuff, or like, like 1980 in particular, like, what made you... Like, uh, what intrigued you, I guess, enough to write that? That's a great subject. Really. Well, I, you know, I discovered the Beatles, uh, which inevitably, you know, one would do. Uh, but I discovered them in 1977, went ho- head over heels about the Beatles and their solo years. And, you know, that was uh, Double Fantasy was the album that came out uh very early on in my consciousness about the beatles and um i I was excited by it i'd seen the advanced articles in rolling stone and and uh, all of the buzz and uh you know three weeks later john lennon is dead and uh, i think i've been trying to come to grips like so many people every day since then and um you know the closer you look at that wonderful story though you begin to notice that um, with the exception of how badly, uh, obviously, it ends that year, uh, the guy was enjoying an incredible artistic renaissance, uh, really until the last hours of his life. And I wanted to bring that part of his story uh, into narrative form and not uh, 
the assassination, which tends to overshadow um, his last year. So I wanted, I wanted an alternative to the true crime books uh, that inevitably uh, are created when it comes to the events of December 8, 1980. That was a unique take. That's what made me ask that originally. Like, uh, so like that, I think that a lot of people have that nostalgia with the Beatles. Like, they found them young, and they uh, and they just kind of like I don't know worked on them. Like, uh, so you write a lot of stuff though. I mean, you've like you've been writing books for how long? Like, how many years? Like, two thousand six, I guess, or longer. Um, I my first book was published. Uh, it was an academic book in nineteen ninety six, I believe. Wow. Um. So, and I have a number of academic titles that are out there. Um. You know, I. I suppose I have a kind of bibliomania <laughs> uh, when it comes to, to writing, but there is something absolutely seductive about being in that world where, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you exist in another place. Um, and it's not because my life, in, in my real life is, is not good, it's wonderful, uh, and I'm, I have a wonderful family, but rather it's just intoxicating to be able to go into a place, whether it's 1980 or 1966, or a completely manufactured, fictive universe, and spend some time there. No, I like it's, that aspect. Uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely addicting. You sound like a fiction writer. Like you sound like a fiction writer, but like you're writing a lot of nonfiction, which is interesting. Like I feel, I feel like how you describe that would be like how like a great fiction writer sure. would. Sure. And you know, I in fact I'm teaching a a nonfiction course this semester here at Monmouth University, and one of the things we talk about a lot is the idea of creative nonfiction, where you take um, historical facts, but you bring them to life in such a way that you know you're creating a page turner, right? You're creating a book that draws the reader in, has moments of suspense, um, where sometimes the outcomes may seem uncertain. Um, and I think those are the kind of books we all want to read, right? Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we want to read the ones that grip us. So yeah. you bet, I try, to, I try to bring the stories to life in that way. It seems like that, I know for sure. Uh, who's your favorite Beatle? I don't have one. You need them all. Uh, every Beatle is essential. Uh, George Lawrence is essential. Brian Epstein. Um, you know, I I, uh, I I want everything. Uh, today I was asked, you know, Beatles or Rolling Stones. I, I need all of them. <laughs> are you kidding? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to make those kind of distinctions. Um, I want it all. Yeah. My mom always tries arguing with me about the Rolling Stones being better than the Beatles. And like, I'm a big Beatles fan too. And I, she always just like thinks, she like hates the Beatles or something. It's like, I don't know. I don't, I won't. Yeah, I don't why does it have it. to be an either or situation? You know, that one of the best things that happens to the Rolling Stones is the Beatles sort of move off uh, the page a little bit in 1969. And that gives them some breathing room during their greatest period, right? You know, roughly from Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed into Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street. That's an incredible period of artistry for them, you know, and it's helpful that the Beatles have sort of gone into, uh, well, permanent hibernation. Huh. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, so you wrote, uh, you wrote books on George Martin as well. Like, uh, were, you, were you drawn to him as well in the, like, more or less? Well, yeah, and, and, you know, my, my quest is to try to understand the art. Um, at the end of the day, that's what I'm interested in whether I'm talking about John Lennon or, or George Martin or the Beatles. And to understand the Beatles art, ground zero is June 6, 1962, when they have the good fortune of walking into Studio Two and there's George Martin, um, you know, a man they didn't know other than from, by reputation of the comedy records he had produced. 
and uh, you know, trying to understand how they go from Love Me Do on that day through uh, Abbey Road and, and the last days, at least as a recording unit in August 1969. You got to understand George Martin. He's essential to that tale. You know, how was he able to maneuver inside of the, the power structure of that band? What is our debt to him? And I, I believe it's considerable um, that the second luckiest day after the day when Brian Epstein hitched his wagon to their star, their second luckiest day was failing the DECA audition in January 1962 and being available uh, to yeah. be in George's tutelage. Um, you know, it's a it's a marriage made in heaven. They didn't need a techie producer like the guy they may have landed in Mike Smith at DECA. They needed George Martin, who was, you know, creative uh, and interested in, as he used to put it, using the recording studio as a kind of magic workshop. Yeah. What do you think makes the Beatles so magic? Like that? I think they are, man. Like they're like a, they like were one of the first, I guess like Elvis was like the first to blow up, I guess. But I mean, they're, they're like one of the first, I don't know. Like, like, what do you think makes them magic? It's like a weird thing. They're a miracle. Um, and that, <laughs> I, I was speaking to uh, the great guitarist, Steve Van Zandt today. And that's what he said. They were a miracle. And I think he's right. They're absolutely um, a miracle. They shouldn't exist. Uh, coming from Liverpool in 1962 into the world, uh, the recording artistry world, uh, and certainly coming to the United States in 1964, it kind of defies logic and expectation that they could take this fusion amongst the four of them and create what they do in those masterworks, you know, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Abbey Road. Um, it's, it's just absolutely remarkable. Now, the miracle part aside, one of the best aspects of it, though, that I love to talk about with our students here is the fact that um, when this happens, this, this, this wonderful fusion, it is also because they were very ambitious. They didn't quit, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of years and opportunities for them to break up between 1957 and 1962, where everybody else in their circle had essentially gone by the wayside because real life steps in, people get married, people get jobs, etc. They had stayed together, but they also were extraordinarily uh, hardworking. You know, they didn't take many days off until later. Uh, they would work 14 hours. When they had an idea, they would see it through to perfection. Great, great example of that is Help, the song Help. And it has that wonderful descending um, lead guitar line that George Harrison plays. He couldn't play it the first time through. But, you know, a lot of bands would have said, well, who cares? We'll ditch it. Nope. <laughs> they record it until George Harrison had that line down cold. Uh, you know, and it's a central part of the song. It's one of the great moments of complexity inside that song, but it's, it just exemplifies how hard they worked. They had all the talent, but they, when you add in hard work and that kind of steadfastness, that's when I guess those kind of miracles happen. That's yeah. It's rare. I love like, a band like that. It was like, it was like four Elvises. It was, I mean, it was, it was <laughs> like, like, it's weird, man. Like I just, just seeing how like music, I mean, I guess it made sense. The music really made money back. They were one of the first bands to really make money with it. They're, they're one of the first arena ones too, I think. I mean, uh, I think the Doors did the arena tours first, but the Beatles were the first to kind of like do the arena thing, I think, like like on a bigger level than Elvis, you know? And the, sure. just, um, and you know, they changed music. the industry in the sense that they rewrote it uh, so that they could 
become a studio band. Prior to that, you know, um, bands only made their money on the road, right? They got a pittance in royalties. And that was essentially how the record labels made their money. Uh, But the Beatles upended that. But of course, they could do that because they had sheer economic power. Yeah. And like the Hamburg Germany story is interesting. You brought up like how they uh like they were they earned it, man. They they literally worked for it. Like uh, I mean they were sleeping in like a closet or something, weren't they? Like it was like a small room. Like they're all sleeping in, like working in like Hamburg Germany for like like the Malcolm Gladwell perception, like getting your ten thousand hours came from that originally. Like the the Beatles yeah, I you know I've I've heard Gladwell get uh, criticized lately, but that ten thousand hour rule is a very powerful yardstick for thinking about what they did in those five residencies by playing six days a week. Yeah, you know, six nights a week, seven days a week, rather. Um, you know what a what a remarkable um, output uh, that they had. You know, talk about an apprenticeship uh, where they all uh, learned how to play in their in their own fashion. It's vital to that story. You know, a lot of people have desires to be a novelist or a musician or I don't know a football player. You name it. Um, but there's an, another aspect to actually putting in those hours. No, definitely. I, I, I see that a lot of my generation too. I saw a lot of people that are really talented, didn't stick with it kind of thing. And then the, the people that outwork everybody are the people that, that do it. It's it, like, the, and I feel like the Beatles were no different. You had four guys that outworked everybody. I mean, the, basically. So they got better and like they're saw and the, the fact that they're only around for like such a short time is weird to me too. Like, like that's such a powerful band, big legacy inspired so many bands. It w- I mean, it was barely around a decade, you know, a little over, but it's it just, I mean, I mean, I guess if you count 57, I mean, they're, they're only popular for a short amount of time rather, you know what I mean? Rather sure, than, well, yeah. they only made records for just short of seven years. Right. That's more or less what the focal point of the Beatles is. I feel like for myself is those, is those seven years. And that, that's just like, that's insane. Like that's insane. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've said many times before, and and I believe this, that the greatest move they ever make is walking off the stage forever in 1969. Um, They created uh, an unparalleled mystique that exists around their reputation and their achievement. You know, this is a band that did what they were going to do. And, uh, and left before they tarnished their reputation, before they, um, before they maybe poorly served uh, their music by getting back together. Um, I mean, you can imagine, uh, I wish John Lennon had lived, of course, but I imagine if, if he had, they would have gotten back together. Everybody did. The money was too big. Um, I mean, by that point, um, they were getting close to being offered a billion dollars. They wouldn't have been able to turn that down, I don't think, especially if they could give it to a charitable organization, right? I mean, that was their entire entire brand is peace and love and progressive politics. So they couldn't have passed up on that. Um, But, you know, for them to get back together during the disco era, or perhaps worse yet, during the sort of plastic, synthetic, synthesized 80s, I I think they might very well have tarnished their sound doing that. But of course, the mystique of it all is that we'll never know. Yeah, it was it was weird seeing them break up into like wings and uh, and like solo projects of Paul McCartney and like solo projects of John Lennon and uh, George Harrison playing solo projects and also on their projects. <laughs> he was smart enough to play both sides. Like, <laughs> it was just like it was just interesting. The music that came out of it solo. Even. I mean, we wouldn't have the traveling Wilburys. We wouldn't have like I mean, I mean at least that guitar in it. You know, it's like 
it's just like kind of crazy seeing how they all went their own way after that. Like it was, it was such a magic time, I and mean, people will still listen to Paul McCartney talk. I mean, you, then the it hasn't been in a band since like 1970, or was it 71 or 70? I'm blanking on that. Like when they broke up, they broke up. Uh, well, in August 196 in September 1969, they oh, 69, were okay. done. Um, okay, said as much. You know. Uh, and, and imagining that we couldn't have all imagine pun intended that we wouldn't have all of those wonderful solo records, right? I mean, yeah, I believe the number is they had twenty number one solo hits. That's insane to even yeah, think about. I yeah, mean, they're still writing hits afterwards, and and like you, you hear that a lot in the solo product. Like you can hear like uh, I feel like John Lennon needed more of a band to fill in, but but I mean, Double Fantasy is still a great album, but I feel like he needed more of a band feel than like Paul McCartney did. Paul McCartney had like Linda McCartney and like a couple session musicians, and he had a full sound. But I think John Lennon had kind of like a fraction of his sound. But his words were great, and their his songs were so powerful, it didn't matter that he was just playing piano basically because he was so powerful. Well, yeah, but he had a, he did have a band he liked very much for that record. You know the. Earl Slick and Hugh McCracken and, you know, they were a crack unit uh, that were very well selected by Jack Douglas for that project. And um, in fact, Douglas also did something brilliant uh, in that he took John's demos and had um, uh, hired a, uh, an arranger so that by the time the band got in the studio with John, they knew all the licks and all and, and the songs very, very well. Yeah, I just felt like the, the way it felt though was like it felt like it felt like one fourth of the Beatles. You know, it, 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 <laughs> well, it, it probably it, is, right? <laughs> yeah, it literally was. It literally was, but it was still a great sound, not to knock it. But I felt like the Beatles together were better than they were solo. But I, I but, no, I totally agree with you. I think they were always the sum of their parts. Yeah, uh, and and you know when you look at their careers, much of the best material is released in their earliest parts of their solo career. Ha. <laughs> That's you funny. Know, You're right. Now that's a natural, that's natural anyway, given, you know, laws of diminishing returns. But um, the closer they were to being a working unit, I argue, and I think the numbers prove this, that that was their, their really their best work. And the same was true, by the way, for George Martin, <laughs> when you look at his yeah. post Beatles production work. Um, but of course, he never had a client again, that was like John Paul George and Ringo. Wait. Yeah, Martin died like in '66, didn't he? He died pretty young. Like, or... No, no, he died in 2016. In oh, fact, wow. a couple what? of weeks will be uh, the anniversary, March 8th, 2016. You may be thinking about Brian Epstein, who died in August 1967 at 32. Maybe I fit. Yeah, okay. Maybe I mixed him up because like, I, I thought, yeah, that makes more sense. Okay, so I was like, I thought they died so young. Yeah, but no, yeah, I remember him dying after. <laughs> yeah, Brian doesn't see the end of the Beatles story. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, who was that drummer that uh, was like a Pete Best or something? Who was the drummer like that, that before Ringo that like just like they had somebody, didn't they? And right before uh, they Pete blew Best, up. Pete Best, of course. Yeah, Pete, Pete is thought that was Pete's I mean, still alive and with us in Liverpool. I mix I mix up Pete Best and Chad Channing from uh, Nirvana. I mean, they both have the same story. They're like they're like a, they're like a drummer. Then all of a sudden the band blows up and they're just like, oh fuck! Like that's how I feel. It's like. <laughs> Pete would like, probably enjoy that story in an ironically interesting way. <laughs> yeah, do you know? I uh, actually I've not met Pete. That sounds uh, like you knew. Okay, yeah, it just sounded like you did. Yeah, no, I don't know Pete, but he. Yeah. I know. Uh, obviously, I've studied him a lot. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, that's awesome. What did you think of that movie uh, where that guy uh, woke up and everybody didn't know of the Be no one heard of the Beatles before, and then started playing? I forgot what it's called right now, but do you remember that? It's called Yesterday. And, Yesterday. Um, that's it. I I love the concept. I think it's a fascinating concept. You know, but as a movie, uh, I was severely disappointed or sorely disappointed because the the characters, the romantic leads didn't seem like they were in love to me. And so 
you know, if the, if the love story doesn't feel convincing enough, I have trouble because that's what they're selling me, right? Is this right. idea that these two will have chemistry. I had trouble connecting with it in that way. Um, I, I felt like it probably needed a rewrite. The idea is wonderful. And of course, um, have you, you've seen it, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And the logic of having, if there's a world with no Beatles, then John Lennon's alive and they play out that logic and you see him at the end. That I thought that great. was really touching. That but was, I, that was. I think that if they'd really secured other parts of the story, I probably would have been in a puddle in the yeah. theater, uh, you know, of my own tears. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I do like that idea, you know, if you work out the internal logic of the film. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, Paul McCartney was saying on like one on some TV show that he saw it. Uh, he, he said he saw it in the back of the theater, and they're like, "Paul McCartney was the greatest uh, songwriter of all time." And he's like just giggling in the back about it. Uh, <laughs> I think it was on Colbert or something. I forgot some show like that. It was like talking about Paul McCartney seeing it in the theater. Also, I thought that was interesting. The Beatles had a good thing. Like you said, you found them on the cartoon. I, I think everybody had their own kind of experience finding the Beatles, and I think that um, and, and as they go on through generations now, it's kind of crazy. What's yours? Like. I see. I don't know. Actually, I don't actually know mine. Actually, because it's not like my favorite band, but they're up there. You know what I mean? Like I think they're. I, I can't even remember the first time I heard the Beatles right off. I, I don't. I can't name it. But I feel like everybody else has that. Like they they found them like in some way. Like uh, it's almost like that JFK thing. Like where we were JFK got shot or something. Like so older people always know. Like like oh I saw him here. I saw him here. I saw him on Ed Sullivan. Like I, I saw him here. The the huge ones. You know. You know, in my case, I think I became. Co- I, I think I became cognizant about them, but they were always there. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, you know, it's it, we're all on our our own quest to find great music, and fortunately, you know, they're one of the choices we have. Um, but uh, and I'm I'm delighted that I've at one time I lived when all of the Beatles were walking the earth, right? I, I'm excited by that, and it means a lot to me. But you know, I'm always on the quest for new music. I would love to see. Uh, the band or the artists who come along and unseat the Beatles, um, you know, or at least have a, a worthy comparison to them. A number of artists, of course, have had, you know, cadres of hit singles or a litany of albums, uh, but no one has quite created the level and high quality of their output. I want that uh, because I'm always searching for for new music. You know, I, I feel lucky and thrilled that I have them in my collection. I want more, um, you know, and I, I hope we do see something like that. I, I almost feel like a lot of it was stifled in the nineties. Cause, um, cause I think like, uh, like the same way when the Beatles blew up, like Elvis tried to keep them out of America. I felt like the Rolling Stones did that to the Verve pipe out of Britain at the time. Like uh, they had that bittersweet symphony song and like they sampled a stone song and then stones <laughs> are just like, they had, they jumped on any excuse they could to trample them, you know? And that and, was I, a, that's a heartbreaking story, you know, because it, it, it just killed the Verve. The Verve. I just called them the Verb. I called them. I said <laughs> it, it really did destroy it. them. Um, I was on a did a book signing once uh, with another fellow who was their guitarist. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, he told me a number of their stories, and it really breaks your heart uh, because um, I really felt like they were about to go places. Same. Same. I, yeah, I, the only band I could even think of like that that Britain produced since then, at least ex- Britain exclusive, I'd say like Gorillas and Blur, kind of like like similar kind of vibe. Like uh, they, they never really blew up like the beat. They only like in America they only had that one song really, that song two or like uh, or like like with the Gorillas they had maybe like three songs, but but they they had the potential though. Like, like oh, they, the Blur, yeah, Blur is wonderful. Um, yeah, you know, and 
that was a band that I happened upon because I was with my future son-in-law and we were in his car one day and, and they were on his Spotify playlist. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, I'm just imbibing them. They have a number of really terrific songs. Um, yeah, they never pop really well. Um, but I do feel I'm, like you, I feel like maybe they didn't get uh, the attention they may have deserved. Yeah, and then like uh, and the gorillas, I think were good too. Like the same guys, a couple couple of the same guys, and then like uh, Arctic Monkeys had that Beatles. I like, love the Arctic. Well, Arctic Monkeys can really play. Yeah, they're like a punk rock version of the Beatles almost. You know, like a, like punk rock, I guess, like by attitude, not necessarily sound, but but I, they they just remind me of the Beatles kind of like. And uh, Oasis had that potential too. That like they they were just like a rip off of the Beatles almost. They're just like a '90s Beatles almost. Like like I feel like, but I, but I, I think there's so many bands that are so close, but they didn't have the longevity, they didn't have the magic. And you might be right. Uh, the Beatles just stepped away and then hide their fame, made them legends forever. I, I that that could have sure. added a lot of value to it. Now they also had you know some historical uh, and market conditions on their side. You know we had three networks at most, uh, three channels, maybe four True. if you had independent stations back then. Yeah. So it wasn't like you had anything else to watch other than Sullivan on that Sunday night. Um, there was no twenty-four hour sports. You know, when you decided you loved something like that, and there's been nothing like that other than the Beatles, um, you know, you could you could let them envelop your world. Uh, and of course, back in those days, um, the record company, uh, in this case, EMI, was happy for them to have new output anytime they wanted. And so there was a constant stimulation for new product, whereas today, you know, a group will take three, five years off um, and sometimes by design not to dilute the marketplace. Um, and, you know, when you merge those two factors together, you can see how hard it is to build up momentum. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I mean, you get the idea. It's very difficult to build up that continuous momentum that you can then exploit and turn into a kind of global phenomenon. That's definitely true. I'd say Radiohead almost has the same kind of popularity the Beatles do, like for younger people. That's the only comparison I can have in, in recent generations. Like, you know, Radiohead's interesting because they're probably one of the closest artistic comparisons. Yeah, that's what I'm, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I saw them, um, you know, a couple years ago when we used to go see concerts. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a, the thing. Right? I'm a huge fan of Radiohead. And uh, I think artistically in terms of, of growth and the way they have developed artistically they're pretty close to being um a useful comparison you know are they perfect in terms of comparison no <laughs> and they're certainly not uh, a perfect comparison in terms of terms of commercial success but that True. artistic yeah. trajectory with radiohead is it seems a lot like it yeah i know it seems a lot like it. and i was lucky enough to like find the beatles in reflection so like the entire catalog was already done so i almost feel like i grew up with the beatles in a way because like when you're younger you're more drawn to like like the like the one album or something like like the like all the songs on there that that kind of vibe the early beatles vibe and as you get older you get more into like the white album and stuff and like the and like uh their later albums i feel like i, I that's why sergeant pepper for example you mean i feel like you get more into like the I, I personally did anyway. I feel like I got more into like uh, the later Beatles. And the like, one oh. album, how beautifully timed that was um, uh, and, and curated that project, you know, to take that project and what was number one in what, 36 countries, <laughs> so yeah. 40 million copies, yeah. but very well timed. Yeah, that was crazy to think about. 
Well, um, what would you, are there some good links people should look at your books or what book do you suggest somebody watching this or listening to this on uh, streaming services to look up like of yours? Wow. Uh, you know, I check out the John Lennon 1980 book. We're sitting on this important anniversary. Um, uh, I think it's powerful to think about that last year and it's an uplifting story. And I say this knowing very well that, you know, John doesn't survive that year, but what's powerful about it is we all dream about being inspired and, and having, you know, more success in our lives. It's something we do well. And it's a great story about a guy who gets himself up off the mat and says, oh. I'm going to do this and comes up with a spate of, you know, world breaking songs and, and makes it happen. And um, there were a lot of good reasons why he shouldn't even bother. Uh, but he does it anyway. And I, I find those kinds of stories to be really inspiring. And frankly, I think we need a lot of inspiration right now during these COVID days. You know, a lot of people are hurting out there. And, and I, I see something inspiring in that, you know, doing it anyway. Yeah, I think, I think that was the only book that came out in 2020. So if you, uh, if you read books and you miss books, this book came out last year and nothing else did. <laughs> That's right. There were no other books last year. It was a shame. It was a shame, but yeah, it was the only one they printed. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I feel like though. But uh, yeah, check out Kenneth Womack's books. Uh, Google him. Uh, he comes up very easily. Go look through his uh, catalog. Find some books that uh, interest you. Uh, great writer. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on here, man. Like I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. No problem.